a whole set of new data that emerges once you recognize uh, that the text is of invoking earlier texts that are supposed to be familiar to the reader. So that can lead to some really very interesting uh, and exciting new paths of interpretation. So Jonah, there's a pattern Jonah, that Jonah is in a whole bunch of enclosures. You know, he's in the ship, the bottom of the ship, uh, then in the sea and in the fish. Uh, and then he makes a booth for himself. There's a plant that grows over the booth. Um, to give him shade, all of those enclosures uh, really invoke certain Garden of Eden motifs. So that what emerges uh, is that Jonah is repeatedly in these Eden-like locations. Hey everyone, this is What Your Pastor Didn't Tell You. Today I'm on with Dr. Yitzhak Berger. We're going to be talking about how the book of Jonah uses garden imagery, the Eden imagery, and just how to interpret the book of Jonah. How are you doing today, Dr. Berger? I'm great. How are you? Awesome. Okay. Can you give us just a little bit about your background, education? Tell the audience more about you. Um, <clears throat> I was raised in uh, Orthodox Jewish schools in an Orthodox environment uh, from my youth. Um, from the beginning of high school, pretty much, uh, I was associated with Yeshiva University in New York. Um, that's where I received a PhD in biblical studies. Um, <clears throat> you know, in that environment, uh, because of certain faith commitments, um, and I'm sure some, you know, some of your viewers probably relate to this from other perspectives. Um, you know, people tend to concentrate on some areas of biblical studies uh, and less so others. And so in the environment that I was in um, and that I'm still part of, um, people tend to focus on, um, among other things, you know, the history of biblical interpretation, uh, the literary study of the Bible uh, that doesn't involve, uh, you know, the intense study of its, uh, of its sources and the history of its composition. Um, and that, those are pretty much the areas I've concentrated on. So I wrote my doctorate on uh, a particular medieval Jewish commentator, who often, by the way, gets cited in biblical scholarship, um, Rabbi David Kimchi, otherwise known as Radak, uh, who's a very influential uh, Jewish interpreter, um, mainly from the beginning of the 13th century, kind of started his career a little earlier. And I've continued to work on him and some other medieval stuff, but I've also done considerable work um, on, the, on the biblical text from a literary standpoint, and especially uh, on um, interbiblical illusion, the uh, uh, sort of new perspectives that can emerge on biblical texts uh, from just a whole set of new data that emerges once you recognize uh, that the text is of invoking earlier texts that are supposed to be familiar to the reader. So that can lead to some really very interesting uh, and exciting new paths of interpretation. Um, you know, I think the the background that I have, the education that I have, you know, everything has its pluses and minuses. Um, I think that um, there are some real pluses that are kind of worth noting for the kind of background that I have. And that is, first of all, 
uh, a knowledge of spoken Hebrew gives you a really good ear you know, for um, connections between formulations uh, in, in the Bible and different parts of the Bible. Um, <clears throat> you also know a lot of biblical texts just from listening to uh, readings in the synagogue and from study. Uh, and so there are certain, certain things that ring to you. Um, so that's a very helpful thing to have. Um, other people who kind of don't sense the same thing sometimes raise questions, you know, methodological questions about whether certain connections you're drawing are real or not. Um, but, uh, but I think it's a huge plus. And also, you know, kind of the working assumption that tends to be made um, in, in these environments that that the Bible or that biblical, individual biblical texts have a certain internal consistency and to an extent the Bible generally also, uh, it kind of enables you to make observations that might not otherwise get made uh, if uh, if you didn't make those assumptions, excuse me. Um, so I guess that's a, you know, not kind of an adequate overview of my background that it's kind of relevant to what we're talking about today. Yeah, awesome. Much appreciated. Uh, so... Let's talk about your book. Uh, first of all, uh, what is the name of the book? Um, where can we, what other resources maybe uh, would we be, would my audience be able to um, access if they, you know, want to read more about your work? Um, so the book is called Jonah in the Shadows of Eden. That discusses uh, connections between the book of Jonah and Garden of Eden motifs um, elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, and uh, if you want to just get a little synopsis to that'll whet your appetite, uh, I wrote kind of a short summary of it uh, on a, a website called uh, Biblical Interpret. I don't know if it's Biblical or Bible Interpretation. Um, uh, the website is like it's either Bible Interp or Biblical Interp.com. I don't remember exactly, um, but uh, you can find you can find a nice synopsis there that I think uh, I think a lot of people have found that helpful. All right, cool. Yeah, I'll put that in the description so people can check that out. So, yeah, can you give us just a, a background, a general overview of your book there? Um, now some other scholars had already noted that, first of all, you know, Jonah, there's a pattern, Jonah, that Jonah is in a whole bunch of enclosures. You know, he's in the ship, the bottom of the ship, uh, then in the sea and in the fish. Uh, and then he makes a booth for himself. There's a plant that grows over the booth um, to give him shade. Um, so others had noted, not many, but others had uh, had noted that some of these enclosures, uh, and I'll argue all of those enclosures, uh, really invoke certain Garden of Eden motifs. So that what emerges uh, is that Jonah is repeatedly in these Eden-like locations. Um, so I kind of took that and ran with it. I kind of noticed um, that the Eden allusions in the text of Jonah are actually much more expansive than had been realized. Um, <clears throat> and once I realized that, it was actually a real challenge to kind of make sense of it. And that's because I'm convinced uh, that the book of Jonah is intended to yield multiple meanings from beginning to end. Um, so I kind of had to tease that out. You know, there are some signifiers in the text that really feed into one reading more so than another. Um, 
So you kind of have to tease out what the text is doing in each case. Um, but you know, the simplest way of looking at the book of Jonah has always been that Jonah does not want to do his mission uh, of giving the people of Nineveh a chance to repent and save themselves. Now, why he doesn't want to do that, that's uh, that's a whole dispute. Um, but, um, uh, but that's the simple way of looking at things. Um, and if you view the places that Jonah either pursues or ends up in, uh, as Eden-like locations, um, then the theory that I developed, and which I think I was able to uh, to bolster in ways that are persuasive, uh, is that uh, Jonah, Jonah the moralist, who doesn't want to give Ninveh a chance to repent and save itself, uh, really wants to live in a very different kind of world where God doesn't give people the opportunity to save themselves uh, to repent. He's a moralist who thinks that one sin and then you should be condemned. So according to that way of looking at things, when Jonah pursues these Garden of Eden-like places, what he's really doing is saying, I want to live in a world like the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve were in at the beginning before they sinned. Uh, because in that Garden of Eden, once they sinned, they were banished. And Jonah wants the people of Nineveh to be similarly condemned. Um, so according to that more standard view of Jonah's personality, uh, that he's the moralist, <clears throat> that's why he's running to these Eden-like locations. The thing is, simultaneously, I think there is another implied in a reading, another interpretation uh, to, uh, to go with the first one. Uh, and that it's ultimately complementary, uh, which is that Jonah is, according to this other reading, not a moralist, uh, but he's really a pacifist. Uh, he understands his mission not so much to tell Ninveh that they should repent and save themselves, but uh, to go pronounce, simply pronounce doom on Ninveh. Uh, and if that's his mission, then when he runs away, it's because he doesn't want to help destroy them. That was he's Jonah the pacifist. And Jonah, the, when Jonah the pacifist runs away to these Eden-like locations, uh, what he's really doing is he's trying to live, again, in a kind of alternate existence, but it's really this dream world where there's no suffering, where people's conduct is not scrutinized because everything is just wonderful. Um, <clears throat> and that's the kind of world he wants to live in. Now, in the final analysis, I think that these two readings complement each other uh, because the message that God wants to communicate to Jonah um, is that you have to have a properly balanced attitude uh, toward human sin and its ramifications. In other words, God wants people to live in a world uh, that's really a hard slog where there's successes, but also failures. There's opportunities for repentance, but sometimes there, there might also be serious consequences to sin. So sort of neither extreme reaction, uh, the moralist nor the pacifist reaction, is really in keeping with God's objectives uh, for the world that we live in. So Jonah's uh, escape to Eden uh, is really improper, and that's the, the, the lesson that God teaches him uh, at the end of the book. It's, it's a lesson he's constantly trying to teach Jonah because he doesn't let Jonah remain in these Eden-like enclosures. 
they always spew him out in one form or another. Uh, but in the final analysis, uh, God uh, seeks to teach Jonah, especially at the end of the book, uh, that uh, he has to take a very, very different attitude uh, toward all these kind of tribulations of human human conduct and human existence. Very fascinating. Okay, so, uh, you know, you, you briefly talked about like what it would mean for the writer to, you know, how they would have seen Eden. But can you talk about just um, maybe give a little bit more detail on that and maybe just like how an ancient Israelite would see Eden? I would assume something like, uh, you know, they, they're kind of in the desert-ish area and, you know, Eden is some kind of like, I guess, almost like a perfect place maybe. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, just about every biblical text that mentions uh, Eden or the, or the garden or the Garden of Eden um, makes clear that we're talking about a divine location. It's a place where whoever's in there uh, is really kind of in close contact with God, is under God's protection. And so Eden is referred to simply as the Garden of God or the Garden of the Lord in a number of different biblical texts. Um, so that's one just foundational association. Um, Eden is this idyllic location. Now, sometimes that, as an, and this is also true of the book of Jonah, uh, that comes together with uh, a, a perception that Eden is glamorous materially. Um, and it's not just a place where you're in spiritual communion with God. Uh, it's also a place uh, that has riches and everything is materially wonderful. And the Garden of Eden story in Genesis, you have all the trees that they can eat from without working from them. Um, so in all respects, the Garden of Eden uh, represents this ideal kind of world. Now, the thing is, there is also the additional thing, which you get only in the Garden of Eden story at the beginning of the Bible. Now, in that story, you have that additional dimension where sinning in the Garden of Eden um, necessitates that you be banished. There are you know, other Eden texts in the Bible that also speak about you know, people having to be removed, uh, at least by implication, from or the, or the Eden-like location is destroyed. But it's really the, the text at the beginning of the Bible uh, that makes clear that there is also this association that the garden of God is incompatible even with a limited amount of sin. Um, and uh, the approach to the book that I just mentioned, uh, which I think is the, the more obvious approach uh, to this to these Eden motifs, uh, is that Jonah is invoking that aspect of Eden. He, he does not want Ninveh to have an opportunity for salvation. And uh, he just symbolically, I mean, he escapes tries to escape to an Eden-like world where uh, you don't get second chances. And that's the position that he's trying to advocate. Uh, that is the position that he, uh, in certain places in the book, uh, commun actually communicates to God. Um, but it's a position that God will have none of because that's not uh, the objective that God has for uh, the world as we know it. Uh, after Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. Wow, that's really, really interesting to think about. Okay, uh, let's talk about uh, the actual story, Jonah. So the story starts with, you know, 
Uh, Jonah receives a message from God to go to Nineveh, or as you say, Nineveh. Instead, he gets on a boat to Tarshish. What about the story of Jonah makes you think that Tarshish is seen as some type of Eden? Uh, well, that's actually quite important because, as you say, it's at the very beginning, and Tarshish is actually not one of the enclosures. Um, so that was actually a sticking point, which I, I think prevented scholars from seeing the pattern adequately because, you know, the enclosures are seen by some scholars as Eden-like locations, but to understand where the book is going with that, you really have to understand that that's where Jonah wants to be. Um, so Tarshish, which is his destination, that kind of really has to be one of those. Um, and the truth of the matter is that uh, there's excellent evidence that it is. So first of all, you know, even without um, anyone trying to make the case that I'm making here about the book of Jonah, um, those scholars have identified Tarshish uh, as something that wherever it is and uh, wherever it was, and there's a whole debate about where the real Tarshish uh, is or was, um, that Tarshish had become, at least later in the biblical period, uh, an, a distant paradise in the ancient imagination. I think that's the language that Cyrus Gordon used about it, uh, which some other scholars picked up on it, picked up on. And the reason for that, first of all, um, there's a motif that appears repeatedly in the Bible uh, of ships of Tarshish. These ships of Tarshish are either going to Tarshish or from Tarshish, uh, but the common denominator of these ships uh, is that they are regarded as glamorous. They carry precious stones. That must have been what people associated with Tarshish. It was a place where uh, there were uh, precious stones that could be obtained. So that would have contributed to this literary motif that emerged of the ship of Tarshish carrying precious stones. Um, so that, that is what ships of Tarshish always are in the Bible. Um, and there's every reason to think, therefore, that in the beginning of Jonah, when Jonah goes to a ship heading to Tarshish, that what that means then uh, is that he wants to go to that kind of location, or the, a, an idyllic kind of location. Now, where do you get the Garden of Eden part of it? Because that's important. First of all, just the the motif of ships of Tarshish, including, by the way, uh, ships of Tarshish being um, being uh, uh, destroyed by uh, by a great wind, which you of course have at the beginning of Jonah, and you have that motif elsewhere in the Bible. Also, I'll just mention a Psalm. I think it's forty eight, um, where where you have a verse that says uh, that you God. Um, with an east wind destroy ships of Tarshish. And the context of that is that the divine location of Jerusalem uh, is supposed to be superior to any other perceived uh, divine or ideal location. Um, so the motif is very clear elsewhere in the Bible. I mean, that's what ships of Tarshish are. And you actually have uh, a much more explicit reference to uh, or I should say a more explicit link between ships of Tarshish and a Garden of Eden um, in the, the book of Ezekiel, chapters 27 and 28. There's a stretch of chapters there in Ezekiel that are absolutely essential uh, to understanding uh, the book of Jonah, in my opinion. Um, some of the analogies, the parallels 
were noticed by others, but they really didn't know what to do with them. And they kind of tried to, in some cases, uh, dispense with them as just being coincidental. Um, but in Ezekiel chapter 27, ships of Tarshish um, signify, they supply, but they also signify a certain Garden of Eden-like location um, to the north. It's the um, the city of Tyre, which is to the north of Israel, and it juts out uh, into the Mediterranean Sea. So uh, Ty and Tyre was evidently a prosperous place. Uh, so when Ezekiel describes the destruction of Tyre because of their sinfulness, uh, he compares Tyre uh, to a ship of Tarshish at sea, again, because Tyre was seen as being, so to speak, on the sea because of its the configuration of the uh, of the coast over there. And you can see this on a map. You open up, uh, you know, if you do a Google image search of uh, of Tyre, uh, and you'll uh, you'll see how it juts out into the Mediterranean. So in that context, um, I think it's in Ezekiel 28 explicitly, uh, Tarshish is compared to the Garden of Eden. Um, and by the way, there is also a kind of stone in that context that is called a Tarshish stone. Um, so it's, it's quite clear that, to my mind, that the ships of Tarshish in Jonah um, not only uh, uh, represent uh, a Garden of Eden-like location, um, but that, in fact, uh, it reflects the fact that at the very beginning, uh, Jonah's effort to go to Tarshish and even just to enter the ship, uh, which represents that kind of location, immediately suggests um, his objective of entering that very different kind of world. And again, and it's something that God won't allow. Awesome. Okay. And uh, regarding the fall of Tyre and Ezekiel, can you, is there anything else you wanted to add uh, that uh, maybe gives references to Eden or adds more context to the story? Um, it, it's, a, it's an interesting and, and complex uh, analogy. Uh, I had mentioned that some people kind of didn't know what to do with the analogy, analogy for a long time. You know, it's been noted that the sea storm in Jonah uh, has some lexical parallels and some thematic parallels. Um, but more important, lexical parallels uh, to the storm that destroys this uh, tire-signifying ship of Tarshish in Ezekiel 27. Um, some people just tried to suggest that, um, you know, since there was no evident reason, they thought, for, for an illusion there, that uh, these are just analogies that are, you know, just typical of, of sea storm texts. You're going to have certain kinds of terminology. Um, so that maybe there's really nothing to uh, the parallels. The fact of the matter is that already at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, there was one scholar who noted something that uh, really undercuts that whole uh, proposal that these parallels can be dismissed. Uh, and that is that there's a very striking parallel uh, between the book of Jonah and that general context in Ezekiel um, that does not directly involve the sea storm at all in either text. Uh, in the third chapter of Jonah, when the city of Nineveh uh, is under threat, and uh, they're told that, uh, and uh, the king hears about it. And when he hears about it, uh, he uh, rises from his throne, removes his royal robe, uh, puts ashes on and sits on the ground. 
That's a very clear um, sequence. Now, it's very obvious uh, when you look at it that that sequence draws on Ezekiel chapter 26, which makes the first reference to Tyre over there. Nothing to do with a sea storm yet. Uh, in that context, it says that after the destruction of Tyre, other kingdoms were like shocked and that uh, other kings looked at this and they were like so distraught at witnessing such a destruction of an extraordinary kingdom that they got up from their thrones, removed their royal robes, uh, clothed themselves, not in ashes, but it says that they clothed themselves in trembling and they sat on uh, on the ground, not ashes, but the ground. Um, and um, oh, maybe ashes, I'm not sure if I, if I remember correctly, but the point is that the sequence is, uh, is very, very clear. Um, and I think that that makes it abundantly obvious that the parallels to the Tyre text in Ezekiel uh, are, uh, are real, they're very real. The book of Jonah is drawing on that text precisely because it wants uh, to link up those texts. Why you know, is there a, a parallel between these kings who witnessed the destruction of Tyre and the conduct of the king of Nineveh? Um, so that I think is fairly straightforward. As in the book of Ezekiel, Tyre is destroyed, and these kings are like, wow, Tyre was just destroyed. Whereas in the book of Jonah, Nineveh saves itself. Now, Nineveh is the um, Tyre-like location. It's this, uh, you know, it's a glamorous place, but it's sinful. Um, and, uh, and they managed to save themselves because before they allowed themselves to be destroyed, they repent. So when the king does these things, getting up from his throne and removing his royal robes um, and, uh, and humbling himself, so in contrast to what happens to Tyre over there, uh, Ninveh manages to save itself as a result of its repentance. Really, really awesome. Okay, what about, uh, you know, Jonah, he, so he, he's trying to go to Ninveh, he gets on a ship, uh, and then he's, you know, I guess thrown overboard or whatever, eaten by the fish. What about being in the fish for three days makes you think of Eden? Like that seems to be the opposite of a good time. <laughs> well, uh, the three day thing, I mean, that, that has actually been noted by others, again, without making my broader argument. Um, but three days have been noted uh, to be a motif that signifies uh, the time taken to enter into or to be in uh, a divine Eden-like abode. So let me just take one example uh, of uh, something that, again, others have noted. There's a very clear analogy uh, between uh, Jonah and the story uh, of the revelation at Mount Sinai. Um, most scholars have focused on specifically what happens after the revelation when the Israelites sin um, and uh, Moses asks for uh, consideration for them that God shouldn't destroy the people. Um, and uh, uh, there's some apparent links between uh, that scene uh, in the revelation story and, uh, and the book of Jonah. Uh, but more important for this purpose, for, for the purposes of your question is actually um, the three days that lead up to the revelation. Uh, in the uh, book of Exodus, Moses tells the people that they have to prepare for three days 
before, in, or, in order to be able to have that divine experience. Um, there was really a whole, uh, a whole boatload, if you'll pardon the pun, uh, of uh, connections between that text and the book of Jonah in general. But for our purposes here, that's just one, one example of how three days uh, is a motif uh, that is used for the entry into uh, a divine location. The, um, uh, the, the way I read it, the three days, he's not actually in that divine location or doesn't sense he's in that divine location um, until the three days are up. As once the three days are up, uh, that's the transformation. Uh, the text actually refers to the fish slightly differently. Uh, after those three days are up, when Jonah starts to pray and he utters that poetic prayer, which draws on a whole bunch of psalms. And what you see in that prayer is that he's thanking God for his salvation. It's an old problem. I mean, what is Jonah doing giving a prayer of thanks, or what at least for the most part seems to be a prayer of thanks um, when he's still in the fish? So, you know, usually people assume that to the extent that you can't deny that that's a, a prayer of thanks, um, that it's, he's just sort of assuming that he's going to be saved, that the fish is going to spit him out back onto dry, onto dry land, and he'll be able to resume his life. Um, but the fact of the matter is that I mean, there's excellent evidence to think, and others had suggested this occasionally, had suggested this beforehand, uh, that the, the belly of the fish really is where he wants to be, and the three days lead up to that, and then that's the point at which he offers his prayer of thanks because he is uh, in the Garden of Eden location that he wants to be in. Okay, so just so I can understand, and obviously more my audience as well, um, so you, you, it does have some parallels there. At the same time, um, I just can't help but wonder why in the world would a belly of a fish ever be associated with like a great place? Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, I mean, look, in and of itself, it would not be. Um, why the text uses the belly of the fish kind of as a as a symbol of that. So here I have to mention something that I had kind of sidestepped to this point, um, but which, because uh, it's a complicating factor, uh, but I guess it'll be a good illustration of why teasing out how the text is using this Garden of Eden imagery was such a challenge initially. Nineveh itself um, is a Garden of Eden-like location. The reason I say it complicates matters is because if Jonah wants to live in a Garden of Eden and he doesn't want to help Ninveh, well, why is Ninveh a Garden of Eden? He should be running away from Ninveh to his Garden of Eden. Um, but the fact that Ninveh is also itself a, an Eden-like location, much like Tyre, by the way, these are sinful locations that have to lose their glamour, um, uh, or at least are threatened uh, to lose their glamour uh, because of their conduct. Um, so the, the, uh, the Eden-like imagery of Ninveh itself, that actually, uh, at least to my mind, is an important backdrop for the less common reading of the story, that kind of parallel reading that I had mentioned, whereby Jonah is the pacifist who really wants to salvage places like Ninveh. He, 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 when he's running to uh, Eden-like locations, and thinking that you know that he's gone to a world where there's no suffering, no destruction, uh, we don't have to worry, we don't have to scrutinize people's behavior. 
according to that reading of the story, all these places he's going to are really embodiments of Nineveh. Uh, because um, that's the kind of place he doesn't want to destroy. That's why he's running away from pronouncing doom on it. Um, and the connection between Ninveh and uh, and the Garden of Eden is explicit, or truly really Assyria generally where Ninveh is, but that connection draws on Ezekiel chapter 31, which may be the most important uh, text of all that the book of Jonah invokes. Um, so there, Assyria is described as a as a Garden of Eden, and it, it's in, it, it's also jeopardized and ultimately is destroyed uh, because of its sinfulness. Um, so Nineveh is a Garden of Eden. Now, why a fish? So this scholars have recognized for a long time, the fish represents Nineveh um, because. Ninveh, evidently at some point in its history, it was associated with the goddess Nina, uh, who was sort of a fish fertility goddess. And uh, the ideogram that archaeologists have dug up, and you can find, if you do enough Google imaging, you can, you can find this, uh, you can find this uh, online, <clears throat> the ideogram that, that represented Ninveh uh, was a fish inside a house, a fish inside an enclosure, uh, because again, the Hebrew word Ninveh comes from Nina, uh, which is a Semitic word that means a fish, uh, and the word that means a home. So um, Ninveh is associated with, um, with a fish uh, and an enclosure. Um, and so, again, many have noted this, that when the fish comes and swallows Jonah, that fish really represents Ninveh. Now, why does Ninveh swallow him up? So there are different ways of understanding it. It's one, one observation that really doesn't do justice, it's probably true as far as it goes, but it doesn't really do justice to the Ninveh connection is that the fish too is associated with fertility. When it spits him out, it's giving him a rebirth. Um, so that's, you know, on a simple level, that's a way of understanding what the fish is doing there. Uh, but on a deeper level and to account for the connection uh, to Ninveh, you really have to uh, really have to go in a different direction here to understand it. Um, so the way I read it, you know, Ninveh is a is one of these Garden of Eden like locations, um, and Jonah wants again, in particular, according to this uh, less common way to read it, Jonah actually wants to inhabit that kind of location um, and to just live in that paradisaical world forever. So that's that. That's why the fish uh, is invoked there. It invokes Ninveh, um, and it's a way of communicating uh, you know, Jonah's desire to inhabit this Eden-like location, just as Ninveh and the wider look and the wider region of Assyria. Uh, are regarded as Garden of Eden-like locations in, in Ezekiel chapter 31. So see, on a simple level, you don't, you know, the inside of a fish is not, uh, is not a paradise. Uh, but when you see the force of the, of the motif, uh, then it becomes clearer. Very, very fascinating. Okay, um, that gives me more questions to ask. So um, I, I think of two ideas when you say that. So, uh, you know, a lot of scholars have mentioned how this is, 
Genesis or sorry, Jonah two is drawing a lot of like Sheol imagery of like going down to the deep and uh, some have even said that he's like died and come back to life. Um, but I also remember that you know a lot of scholars mentioned that you know the text is kind of ironic sometimes, like the <clears throat> the people on the ship that are supposed to be pagans they go and worship God later or sacrifice to God. And then the Ninevites, they end up, the people that are supposed to be bad, they end up, you know, repenting, I guess. So it's kind of like ironic story. Do you think maybe it's possible that uh, the text is trying to say, like, Jonah is, like, almost looking in all the right places. He sees the belly of the fish as some type of, you know, Eden-like location when he really should be looking towards God. Is that possible in your eyes at all? Uh, yeah, it, his, his whole quest for Eden is, uh, you know, is misguided. I mean, that's the, the, the message of the book. You cannot escape. You have to live in the real world. So yeah, he should be looking for God, but in a very different way. He should not be looking to, uh, to escape to this perfect divine location where he can revel in divine bliss um, without confronting the problems of the world, uh, the, the, without confronting the threat of punishment without giving people an opportunity to repent. Um, as far as the fish being associated with uh, the, the deep, you know, this, the shoal, the depths. Um, so yeah, it is. I mean, he, in the beginning it is, and it was according to my reading, um, <clears throat> he regards the fish as being, you know, the lowest a person can go. Uh, initially it's the three days that, constitute a transformation, which is why after those three three days are up, uh, he gives that prayer of thanks. So that's what that's what I think is going on there. So when he says at the beginning of his prayer um, that, uh, um, you know, you saved me from a confined location, and he says that in the beginning, I called out, he says, I called out from a confined location and you answered me. Um, I called out from the belly of Sheol uh, and uh, you heard my voice. So what does he mean there? I called out from the belly and you heard my voice. I think what's happening there is that, yeah, I mean, the fish does represent um, you know, that, uh, that depths of despair initially, uh, but he's calling out on the third day when he starts to realize that, uh, that this location can now signify um, this uh, this divine you know, divine location, this this Eden like existence that he's been pursuing. Awesome. Okay. And so, um, you know, Jonah he spit he gets spit up. He finally goes to Nineveh. Then, uh, you know, afterwards he goes to watch to see if the city gets destroyed. And while waiting, a plant grows. What parts of this passage here about this plant makes you think of an Eden like uh, territory or whatever? Um, there's a few of the whole bunch of them. Um, got one very important one that I guess I should mention at the outset, uh, is the connection to Ezekiel chapter 31 and elsewhere, actually. Um, there's some, uh, an important text in Ezekiel chapter 17 that the text is drawing on also. Uh, but, um, uh, sort of once you kind of see based on Ezekiel 31, uh, that it's at least possible that the tree is yet another 
uh, Eden-like location. Just as God makes a tree grow, just like in the Garden of Eden, God makes trees grow, uh, and they and they give the per, the person or the people what they want. Um, so maybe one, you know, the clearest um, or the the parallel that would resonate the most uh, would be the parallel that uh, emerges from the fact that a worm comes and attacks the tree. Um, there's a, a kind of set of texts in the Bible uh, where you have an Eden-like location that is in one form or another threatened by a slithering creature. And again, this is sort of something that other scholars picked up on a bit. Um, the, uh, the obvious one is the Garden of Eden story in Genesis. Uh, you, know, you have this tree-lined garden that provide everything the human beings could ever want. Uh, and the serpent, which you know, walks on feet initially, but ultimately becomes a slithering creature at the end of the story, um, that serpent is responsible, which represents temptation, and that prompts uh, Adam and Eve to sin. So the serpent is ultimately, temptation is ultimately responsible uh, for the banishment from the garden. There's a similar text in the book of Joel, the second, the second chapter of the book of Joel, uh, speaks about Israel as a divine Eden-like location. There's one reference there to the Garden of Eden. Um, and what destroys that uh, Eden-like quality uh, are locusts, right? a different kind of crawling you know, insect-type creature. Um, so here in the book of Jonah, you have something quite similar. Uh, we have a tree that represents Eden, and you have a worm, uh, the slithering creature, that uh, then attacks the tree directly uh, and uh, causes it to wither. Um, and that effectively you know, amounts to Jonah's banishment from that last uh, symbol of the Garden of Eden um, that, uh, you know, he, that he thought he had finally attained. And so I think that's probably the, you know, again, the, the parallel that would make this most resonant. Really cool. Okay. Um... You also mentioned uh, Nineveh. You, maybe you already described everything you wanted to say there, uh, but was there anything else you wanted to add regards to Nineveh being some type of Eden-like location? Uh, of Nineveh itself? Um, it, it's just something that's it's very important to recognize for the purposes of that that more subtle reading of the story that, you know, that the Edens that Jonah wants to inhabit are embodiments of Nineveh because he doesn't want Nineveh to be destroyed. Uh, the, um, according to the earlier reading of the story that I mentioned, you know, the more common reading that this is Jonah, the moralist who doesn't want to help Nineveh repent. Uh, so then the fact that Nineveh is also Eden-like so what you really need to do is just kind of see it as similar to Tyre, the, you know, the that an, another Eden-like sinful location, or Israel in the second chapter of Joel, um, <clears throat> uh, and perhaps there's another example I'm not thinking of, um, but um, you know, Nineveh is similar to Eden because of its glamour, uh, but it's simultaneously very sinful. They're they're not connected to God at all, um, so. When you have something that has the trappings of the Garden of Eden, uh, but the people there don't merit it, 
so then the location becomes subject to destruction. Uh, so that would be the way to look at Ninveh's Garden of Eden-like status, according to the more conventional way of reading the story. Awesome. Okay. And finally, last question is, you know, we obviously didn't talk about the entire book. There were chapters we completely haven't even mentioned yet. Um, did you want to talk about anything else in your book that was just really fascinating to you or could add uh, greater information into the story? Um, one thing we didn't talk about, if I recall, was the, was the end of the book. You know, the end of the book uh, presents a very uh, tough challenge. Um, you know, the end of the book, the, the tree withers, uh, the hot sun is afflicting Jonah. Uh, you know, on the surface, it just looks like he has heat stroke and is so upset by it that he wants to die. Uh, and God tells Jonah, oh, you're really so upset that you lost that tree. And Jonah says, yeah, Jonah says, yeah, I'm so upset I want to die. And God responds, well, you or you wanted to spare this tree, this plant that you did nothing uh, to to, you didn't do anything for it. It was just something that I brought into being in one day and then it was gone by the next day. So that's what you wanted. That's what you so much wanted to spare. So shouldn't I, God, spare the city of Nineveh with its, with its vast population? So it sounds like a very strange connection. It's just, it's long been this, this almost impenetrable crux. And how do you, how do you explain that analogy? I mean, Jonah on the surface, just wanted that tree because the tree provided him shade. So what does that have to do with Jonah's theological argument with God? If, if Jonah do, doesn't want Ninveh saved because of their sinfulness, right? He wants uh, he wants it to be one sin, then you get condemned, uh, like in the Garden of Eden. So if that's the case, so so then Jonah has a simple response to God. Yeah, yeah, I wanted the tree because. Uh, Without the tree, I, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm getting heat stroke. And uh, I don't think you should save Nineveh because they're sinful. So what does God mean when he makes that analogy? Um, so the perspective that I've tried to offer here uh, really helps resolve that problem. Because once you see the tree as one of Jonah's uh, would-be Eden-like locations, uh, that he wanted to inhabit forever. You know, then his conversation with God there is much more subtle. Uh, God is saying, "You're are you really so upset that the plant went away?" And Jonah says, "Yeah, I'm very upset. I'm so upset I want to die, be precisely because of Jonah's argument all along." Jonah says, "I want to live in a different kind of world. I want to live in the kind of world represented by that tree." And when you gave me that tree that grew over the booth that I made for myself, I thought you were endorsing my effort. I thought, finally, God, and if you came around to my position, uh, which is that, yes, you know, we should, the world should be very different. And at least I, Jonah, can live uh, you know, in this perfect world where there's no sinning um, and everybody just lives, everybody who merits being there, at least, uh, lives there in close communion with God. And then you, God, took that away. And that's why I want to die. That's why Jonah wants to die in the whole book in the beginning when he gets thrown off the boat and is willing to willing to die. Um, he doesn't want to live in that kind of environment. Um, and uh, he wants to live in, in this very different kind of world 
Um, so then God responds to that argument. He says, you, Jonah, wanted to live in that kind of world. He says, you wanted to live in a world represented by that tree that you didn't invest any effort in. It was, I brought it, I brought it into the world yesterday. I made it grow over you. And then I took it away a day later. He says, so something like that, you're investing significance you invest value in something like that. God tells Jonah, that's not what's valuable. What's valuable is the world that I envision, I God envision, right? Which is where uh, people struggle. The people engage in the hard slog. You know, they work to improve themselves. They work to build the world up. And there are low points and high points and there's sinning and there are second chances and there's forgiveness. Um, all of those ups and downs are a necessary component of the world that God envisioned. And it's all of that effort that God values. So once again, he tells Jonah, you know, you wanted to preserve this tree that I brought in yesterday and I took it away today. Yes, it's like this Eden-like thing, uh, but what value does something like that have? You didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't invest a thing in it. Um, so certainly I should save uh, the city of Nineveh, which is this great city with a vast population, uh, many of whom don't really know the difference between right and wrong. Uh, and so God tells Jonah that uh, a place like that, certainly uh, I and you should want uh, to help save. Uh, and that's the, that's the message that God's communicating at the end of the book. Uh, in that very seemingly opaque um, exchange um, uh, with which the book concludes. That's that's so awesome. Uh, it's, it's almost like uh, as a reader, I'm like, oh, you know, Jonah's supposed to be the prophet. He's supposed to be the good guy here. And he's, 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 he's he seems like the bad guy. He doesn't, doesn't realize what his priorities are. So yeah, well, uh, you know, the book is, yeah. uh, you know, there are, there are books about Jonah that are called, you know, Jonah's argument with God. I mean, you know, the Jonah is clearly resisting God and the, uh, you know, there's all kinds of suggestions as to what the book is really about. You know, the, the, this approach that, that I've proposed is really along the lines of one of the very conventional approaches, certainly the, the main reading, uh, which is that, you know, Jonah's a moralist who doesn't want an invade to be destroyed. Um, I'm sorry, doesn't want Ninveh to have a second chance at, uh, at saving itself. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, God has to teach him that lesson. So that's really very consistent with a, with a standard way uh, that people read the book. It's just that there are components of the book that make that point that really need to be, um, to be understood properly. And that's what I'm trying to do. Yes, for sure. Awesome. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's, that's all I got for you. Um, it, can you uh, remind everyone what the book is called, uh, where they can get it? And uh, I'll put a link in the description. And, um, and of course, uh, any other places we can check out your work. Uh, yeah, so the book is called Jonah in the Shadows of Eden. Uh, it's uh, available online. It's from Indiana University Press, but it's available um, if you want to get it as an ebook. It's very inexpensive. It's not a long book. Um, I think it costs like $8 uh, for the Kindle version. Um, the regular version is also not terribly expensive. Um, so, you know, you can get it in all the online places, um, Amazon and others. Um, again, if you want to read a summary just to whet your appetite, I think that website I mentioned is called BibleInterp.com. Um, and there, if you, I guess, kind of Google the name of the book, go along with Bible Interp or search for it on that website, 
uh, you should be able to find the that short write up that I gave. And have you have you done any other work besides that book since uh, since graduating? Um, I've uh, mainly been working on book length projects in the last decade. I mean, some article length stuff. I mean, there's one uh, in, in case people are interested in this. Uh, I have a book, I have an article on the book of Job that should be coming out uh, relatively soon in Vetus Testamentum, which is a professional journal, uh, but which also assigns multiple meaning to the end of the book. You know that I hope people will uh, you know will find suggestive. Um, there's supposed to be an online version that they're going to post first fairly soon. I don't know when that's going to be, um, and it could be that that would, that that online version will be paywalled. Um, but, um, the book length material that I've been working on, I have, uh, a book on that same medieval Jewish interpreter that I told you I worked on in my dissertation. So, um, I have a book on his approach to creation, actually more Genesis material, uh, his approach to creation, the garden of Eden. Um, the, um, he has an allegorical commentary of the garden of Eden story, uh, and to a lesser extent of the Cain and Abel story. Uh, that I uh, provide an annotated translation of in that book. So uh, that actually might be of considerable interest to some of your viewers. Uh, the book is going to be called um, Radak, which is an acronym for his name, R-A-D-A-K, Radak on Genesis, Creation, Humanity, and Torah, you know, with, within, you know, and then there's a subtitle with that, uh, about, the, about that allegorical commentary being published by Barilan University Press. I hope it will be out uh, sometime uh, sometime this year, in the next few months, something like that. I do have another book manuscript that's been completed, which is uh, on mainly on the Book of Judges, to a lesser extent on the Book of Ruth, uh, that also kind of reevaluates um, some of the main narratives uh, based on allusions to other biblical material. Um, but uh, I don't have a publisher yet for that. I'm first kind of putting finishing touches on the on the on the book. Great, yeah, those both sound great. I'd uh, I'd I'd love to have you on an interview specifically about that uh that Genesis one. That'd be really oh, sure, be my pleasure. Yeah. yeah, awesome. All right, so this has been awesome. I I hope you have a great rest of your day, Doctor. You do. Thanks so much. This was a pleasure for me. It was nice nice getting to know you. Awesome, of course. Thanks so much.